0: You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello again. I am so grateful that you're here listening. You will probably hear some of our excited uh, bird friends too. And let's see where to begin. I, as per usual, (laughs) intended to get this episode to your ears sooner. I have been knee deep in all of the preparations to move our office and going from a one room to furnishing five rooms uh, is a whole undertaking, it turns out. (laughs) It's been really fun, but I'm like waking up in the middle of the night with like lists running through my head of great ideas that could visit any other time than the middle of the night, but so it goes, right? Anyway, so <laughs> this episode, I am thrilled to share with you our guest, Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Um, as if you've been listening to previous episodes, as you've heard, I recently finished Michelle's 300-hour skill in action yoga teacher training, and I literally don't. I don't think that there's any other 300-hour training I would want to do because where I'm at with my relationship to yoga, um, and really it to some extent have been for a while, is I enjoy the physical movements, the asanas, the and the pranayama breath practice. But really, I, in my training, I'm not like looking to understand the anatomy in a more detailed way or understand the more physical aspects of it. Um, I really am interested in just helping people connect with their bodies and also integrating all of the sort of philosophical and psychological spiritual concepts of yoga. And so all of those things we went into very deeply in addition to all the socio-cultural stuff of, you know, not appropriating this tradition um, in the way that the West has been very guilty of and just the intersection of social justice and yoga, which has been missing from the conversation in the West for most of the time that yoga has been here. So Michelle is just a trailblazer, fire starter, which you'll hear her talk about in the conversation. Um, Why I'm a little sad I didn't get this to you sooner is because her book has just officially come out within the last few days, and the book launch party is what, I can't remember if I mentioned it, I think I mentioned it in the interview, Um, but you can't go to that because it has already happened. <laughs> so I'm sorry I did not share this with you in time for you to go to the launch party. And sadly, it was on my calendar. And then, you know, just one of those things where like, I was planning on it all day and then I got pulled into something and didn't end up making it. So I'm sad for that, but I have gotten to spend a lot of time with Michelle and just admire her so much. Um, so let me tell you a little bit more about her. Michelle Johnson is an activist, social justice warrior, author, anti-racism consultant and trainer, intuitive healer, and yoga teacher and practitioner. She's led dismantling racism work in many settings for over two decades and has a background and two decades of practice as a clinical social worker. Michelle's work centers on healing from individual and collective trauma, coming back into wholeness and aligning with mind, body, spirit, and heart. She published Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World in 2017. And her newest book, Finding Refuge Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief, was published by Shambhala Publications in 2021. Michelle teaches all over the place. You can find her workshops um, connected with studios both in person and online. And she is just a light in this world. Um, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. And one more thing I want to share before we jump in is that I am finally starting an email community list thing for the Gaia Center. So if you're in Nashville, definitely go sign up. But even if you're not, we will also, in addition to sharing like, Hey, we have this group going on, um, or, you know, here's our new therapist. We're going to share blog posts and um, we'll make sure to highlight recent podcast episodes and also some just like favorite resources that our team is enjoying around mental, emotional, spiritual well-being. So um, yeah, even if you're not here, there's definitely stuff that you might enjoy. We will usually be emailing monthly unless there's something extra special going on. And you can sign up for that over at bit.ly slash the Gaia Center News, all lowercase, bit.ly slash the Gaia Center News, and Gaia is G-A-I-A. All right, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Michelle, I am so honored to have this time one-on-one with you to just have an opportunity for you to share your gifts with maybe some new people and, and hear about all of the amazing things that you're doing in the world.
1: Thank you for inviting me to be a
0: guest on the show. Of course. So we will kind of start with our, our typical uh, beginning, which is giving us both an opportunity to sort of ground and settle. So just invite you to get cozy in your chair, if that's wiggling around or settling in in any particular way. And folks listening can join to whatever extent it's safe and feels good for you. And just noticing the natural rhythm of your breath. The sensation of The surface underneath you, supporting you. The earth that's holding up that surface. And just noticing what's present, what may be emerging. Sensations, thoughts feelings, everything welcome, and just one more full breath, and here we are, so I always like to ask guests if there's just anything you, you want to share with us about what you noticed as you um, checked in with yourself.
1: Well, earlier today, I went into two of my beehives. I have three, mm-hmm. and um, I feel like I'm perpetually concerned concerned about them. but because I'm fairly new to beekeeping, and so mm-hmm. I was I wasn't thinking about worry. I mean, I wasn't worrying about them, but I was thinking about them and that, and sort of feeling them um, and their presence because I'm on my screen porch and they're. I can look out into the yard and see them and they're flying all around too. So that's where my, my mind and spirit
0: went as yeah. I moved through that. I love it. And your bees were definitely on my list of topics I wanted to ask you about. I've heard you talk about your bees, but I would love for you to share a little bit with folks listening just about like, where did that come from for you and what do they mean to you?
1: Yeah, um, and I I wrote a chapter about the bees and, and finding mm-hmm. refuge and the story of them coming to me. But um, I woke up and ordered bees, so it wasn't and like all the <laughs> stuff one needs to take care of them. And uh, I I imagine I had a dream about them, but I'm not sure because I woke up very early in the morning and had was going through the motions of like ordering the things and looking them up and putting my credit card information in, and then realizing I had just ordered two packages of bees mm-hmm. um, and had never taken a beekeeping class and didn't really know what was going on. Um, but I've had bees since uh, 2019, the spring of 2019. And um, I feel like there's so much to learn from the honeybees. And I think this is true of many beings in, in the natural world. Um, and honeybees are a Super organisms, so they don't think of themselves mm-hmm. as an individual bee they think of the hive and themselves as an extension of the hive each individual bee and that feels so aligned with the work i do in the world around justice and remembering um, encouraging people to remember we are connected and interconnected and so i i learn things from them all of all of the time i mean every time i'm, I'm out there and not necessarily in their hive. i go in to check to see how things are going and two of the hives are new so I'm or newer just sort of making sure things are okay and one hive has been here since the beginning and is thriving it's a huge hive Mm. like 30,000 bees in it um, with a lot of honey Um, and today I was leading a session right before this um, conversation and it was a it was an anti-racism or racial equity training with an organization and They were talking about creating new ways of being. And since I had just been in the hive, I was thinking about the cells that bees create, so the honeycomb and the cells within the honeycomb. And after a baby bee hatches and emerges, there's another bee that has to come and clean that cell before the queen will lay an egg there. And I was thinking about what this group was talking about, like creating different ways of being and the process that we have to go through like what is cleaning the cell look like when we mm-hmm. think about the world and the ways that we need to shift and the patterns we need to shift and like who's responsible for that and how and for the bees it's just what they do but they do it to sustain the hive and so I think that's what I'm present to today with them like but every day there's some lesson they offer that feels connected to justice and the collective mm-hmm. and, and how we make change so they mean I mean, I mean, everything to me and really to us, because we actually won't have fresh
0: Mm -hmm. food
1: unless we take care of them and protect them. And, um, yeah. And, and again, this is, we're in in an ecosystem, so we're all, all connected in this way, but we're dependent on the honeybees. We just, many people don't Mm -hmm. actually understand that or know that, but we need them. Um, so that's a little bit about the honeybees and, Mm. and what they mean to me. and I'm not a, I mean, I just have three hives, so I'm never going to be a commercial beekeeper. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in that. And so what that means is I I want to have a relationship with the bees. That is mm. not about taking their resources. Although I've had to do that because I have became honey bound. They didn't have any more room. Mm.
0: Gotcha.
1: So I, that's the only reason I took their, their honey, which was delicious. Mm. But before mm. that, I was going to just let them have their honey. Um, yeah. yeah. And I... Now I forgot where I was going with that.
0: Well, if you think of it interrupt me, but I I am going to chime in on that because I love how you framed that and um I'm I've been an ethical vegan for several years now and and it's a struggle because like many communities there's always like infighting and kind of things that can happen that are sort of like counterproductive to the the ultimate like cause or, or intention. Um, and so, you know, if there are any fellow, uh, ethical vegans listening, I always just feel like, I mean, rigidity is never the answer. Like uh, maybe I could think of of only a couple of like, maybe, you know, don't kill other humans, but even then who knows? So if we're approaching this from a a non-rigid place, like your relationship with the bees is, it it helps you to be an even better human and citizen of the world. And I think that's beautiful. So, you know, if there's vegans who are like, well, we should never keep bees or we should never it's, you know, I would just invite people to, to open their minds and hearts and, and really look at, um, what actually helps us to connect with the world around us. And to me, that's a beautiful example of that. And we've considered doing that as well. Haven't, haven't taken any steps, but who knows, it could happen in the middle of the night one of these days. <laughs> I
1: know, totally yeah. I appreciate what you said about that and rigidity and, and that is, I mean, that is what I remembered what I, where I was going, which was about relationship, right? i the bees are magical, actually. There's a lot of mysticism, mm-hmm. bee mysticism mm-hmm. and things we don't understand and things they do. That's like, how did they do that? And synchronicities and they move between realms. And this is an intuitively, like I wanna connect with them intuitively. Um, so this is is why I have a relationship with them and what kind of relationship I want to have with them. And it is about connection. Um, and I understand people's like, bees should live in trees. And so when my Mm. beehive has swarmed twice, I haven't caught the swarm. Like
0: Mm. they
1: hung out in the tree and then they flew off somewhere and I don't know where they, where they went. But, um, I think there are ways that we can connect with things without, like, I don't, I don't even know that I should call myself a beekeeper because I'm not Mm. keeping them. I'm actually, they're here on my land. They didn't necessarily ask to be here. Although... Um, old, old time beekeepers will tell you that bees choose Mm. you. And given that I had never taken a class and like woke up and my mother was actually quite sick when this was going Mm. on. And I think the bees are connected to her as well and Mm. her ability to heal. And there's a a long story about that and finding refuge. So Mm. yeah, often it's, it's sort of deeper than what we can see on the surface.
0: Yeah. And it's, it sounds like you're, you're hosting and tending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Mm. So um I'll certainly share a little bit in the introduction, just about all of the things that you have done professionally and just in your life. Um, But would love to hear a little bit about just sort of like your, your sense of Uh, why are you here doing the work that you are doing? What is it about um, your life or your ethos that sort of led you to do all of the work that you're doing now?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are many answers to this question. Mm -hmm. And because I'm evolving all the time, the answers may may shift over time. Um, But I had a... It was a psychic, there's a person that I talked to every year, um, who lives in North Carolina. And I think it was the first time I went to see her, this was many years ago, several years ago. And she said, to she said, you're a um, fire starter, like you're, you came in to speed us up. You came in to like, ignite something in people. And um, I had described myself as a catalyst prior to that, but when she said it, it resonated I was like, oh, yeah, I did come in not to speed us up in like the productivity way, but to Mm -hmm. be like, pay attention, (laughs) y'all look at what's going on. What do you want to do about it? Engage Mm -hmm. like that kind of energy. And she's like, we need people like you. And so um, I think this is how I understand my my purpose is to um, be a fire starter, be that a disruptor or a healer, you know, holding healing space or interrupting systems that cause harm. Or bringing people into to wholeness, creating space mm. for that to happen, and believing in our in our wholeness individually and collectively. This these things feel connected to why I'm here, and I also think my um, birth story um, is is related. I, I'm really fascinated with birth stories, actually, and how mm. people come in. And uh, as is in skill in action, I I came in and was two pounds and three ounces. But before I was ever pulled out, my mom had an emergency C-section. I was losing oxygen. And um, my mother had had a miscarriage. She was quite afraid when this was going on. She was then given anesthesia and woke up and I was not there because I was mm-hmm. born in 1975. I was taken to a different hospital that had a premium unit. And, um, you know, so I think yes, I'm a fire starter, but I'm also someone who talks about the breath and making space for people to breathe. And I came in not being able to have full access to the breath and my Mm -hmm. lungs were not fully developed. And so, you know, the first time in a yoga class, when I said, well, oppression takes the breath away, Mm -hmm. um, I was like, oh, you're here to like, talk about the breath in this way that is connected to how we, we actually take the breath away from others because of Um, Our implicit bias, our explicit bias, how we're positioned in institutions and and where we're located um, culturally, meaning our social group memberships and where we have privilege and where privilege is is taken away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm I'm trying to um, not prescribe what people should do, but really definitely, you know, trying to invite people into changing how they are sort of like the bees are a super organism, what would it be like for us to be a super organism and to be here, like real deal for one another and to practice collective care and to make space for everyone to breathe. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk about it all the time. So this is some about my my purpose. And the last thing I'll say is, um, I mean, I understand it's like deeper every day, but understand that my ancestors definitely want me to be doing what i'm doing right now and they keep guiding me and i continue to listen um it's almost like what are those things on boats a rudder is that what switches direction mm-hmm. on it feels like that like they're like go this direction now go hmm. over here now it feels like that and i'm just listening to their guidance and wisdom and so i i know i'm here to say things that they couldn't say and i'm here to do things that Um, perhaps were a challenge given the time in which they lived challenge for them to do and to continue the things that they began um as far as like really disrupting what is causing suffering
0: and Mm -hmm.
1: inviting people into
0: creating conditions for liberation yeah and it's interesting i you know i still have to kind of go through a couple of mental uh hoops when I think of this question, because it's, I was thinking like, you know, how central has yoga been to that work for you or to that path and, and the healing piece of it for yourself and what you offer to others. So I was just thinking like, you know, the, the old question might've been, you know, how important is yoga? How, how central is yoga to that work for you, for yourself and for others in terms of working with the breath in this larger way. But what I've learned from you and other teachers is that, you know, the yoga isn't the thing you do on the mat. It's not even the thing you do with the breath. It is the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I would love for you to talk a little bit about skill in action, but I, I uh, pulled this little quote out because I, I think this really encompasses some of the big picture ideas, um, where you say the teachings of the eight limbed path of yoga focus on principles that can be responsive to the injustices that are happening in the world. They call practitioners into action by suggesting that the only way to be on the path to enlightenment and the only way to practice yoga is to be compassionate and not cause harm to others. The only way not to cause harm is to understand one's power and privilege and to understand that suffering is perpetuated by a lack of recognizing the imbalance of power in our culture. Mm
1: -hmm. So, Um, I didn't hear the, I heard the quote. I didn't hear the question connected with that because the internet was being (laughs) weird. So can you tell
0: me the question that you asked about it? Sure. I mean, it really, it's just sort of like with hearing you mention, you know, the work that your ancestors are guiding you to do and working with the breath and how, you know, your own birth story and, and taking what happens when we take each other's breath away that while I want to ask how central is yoga I I also realize it's this much bigger picture and I would just um, love to hear what you have to say about that, especially in the sense of like the first part of that statement of like, oh, we should be compassionate and not cause harm. I feel like anyone who's interested in yoga would agree with that. Mm -hmm. But part of what's missing from the whitewashed version of it is the second part of the only way to not cause harm is to understand the power and privilege and the imbalance of all of that. So um, it's just... I, I don't even know that it's a question so much as wanting to hear you talk a little bit about how you view yoga in general as as um, connected to all pieces of this work and your whole life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is my understanding of yoga, just like I'm I'm evolving, right, it has shifted mm-hmm. over time as I learn more and um, listen more there's so much that I need to understand about yoga. What I do, what I have experienced time and time again, through the practice of yoga is transformation or an invitation to change Mm -hmm. and an invitation to witness myself and others and what's happening around me. And, uh, an invitation to, um, remember what I named earlier that we're interconnected. And so you're right I heard you earlier speak about you know yoga isn't the pose it isn't the um, um, necessarily the way we breathe it is the pose it is the way we breathe but it's not necessarily just what happens in an asana class um, it's about so much more it's broader than that and so often what I and that's what this quote is about is think about how can I live my yoga mm-hmm. and to be able to live my yoga I actually have to be connected to the relative truth like where am I located? Where am I assigned privilege? What might I not know? Um, what do I know from my lived experience? And this is the kind of inquiry that I feel like yoga invites us into. Um, and and it this kind of inquiry and like sitting with who am I? How am I showing up? How do I wanna show up? Like, I mean, that's deep transformative practice and, and work. Mm-hmm. And as you know, so many yoga spaces are not, they're interested in the compassion part and the, as you named them, like not harming, but they're not necessarily interested in the deep work of what does it mean to be human on this planet at this time and how am I moving through the world differently than other people, like that is the yoga. And and I think I've actually had this question for a long time about, I just didn't frame it in, as, as yoga, but as a child, I remember, saying to my mother, can we bring this person who looks lonely? This is my perception. Can we bring them home? You know, I'd see somebody sitting at the bus stop. Mm -hmm. I'd see somebody in the grocery store. And I I don't, I was a child. So I, I also was reflecting my own loneliness and isolation in a school system where I was one of a few people of color in the entire school. But I was like, tuned in to the fact that, you know, we're moving differently and people may not have what they need. and the loneliness, my frame around that was like, is this person okay, right? Can mm-hmm. we bring them home? Cause maybe we have something they need. It was, it was my like six year old self trying to <laughs> figure that out um, and, and talk about collective care, which, so I think I've been, I think yoga has been central for my entire life. I just, I didn't have the language. I wasn't calling it mm-hmm. yoga. But I think I was asking the questions that I invite people into now, right? Like, what do people need? What do you need? How are you positioned? Um, What does that mean? What is suffering doing? How is it breaking your heart? There's a loud truck. Let's not hear that. Mm -hmm. How um, How do you imagine other people's hearts feeling broken at this time? Like, why is this happening? So I think I've just changed the questions, but the essence is the same. Like, what is your human mm-hmm. experience as you're alive on the planet? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? Why are these things happening that are happening to us and around us? Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about, about the role of yoga, which is really the like the practice of showing up as a messy human in a world mm-hmm. that continually wants to fragment us and still us trying to stay whole and not for our own individual liberation, but for our collective liberation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a part of what you've, you've really helped me with, with yoga is like, you know, I kind of went through the phase of, you know, well, I still am (laughs) mad at the sort of westernized, uh, whitewashed version of quote yoga and, and almost like wanting to throw the whole thing out because of that but also kind of being being mad at some of the at least what i understand of as some of the the roots of yoga and the patriarchal caste based system that it came from and this sort of guru and all of that and going well if i'm not on board with all of that then then i you know how can i be practicing this but how i it, the only way it makes sense to me, I guess, is to recognize that while it's important to honor the honor those roots and recognize that they weren't they weren't all bad, they weren't all based in <laughs> oppression. Um, that it's a living tradition. Like anything worth keeping, has to be a living tradition. Otherwise, it gets it gets stuck and doesn't evolve and grow as humanity evolves and grows, and it and it would become irrelevant. So if it can be a living tradition, then we are allowed to question the parts that don't work so well in terms of the collective thriving.
1: Right. Yeah. I love that. But it it is a living tradition and we're, we're all kind of making meaning of it from our different social locations Mm -hmm. and what you named about the, the roots are not all bad. It's like the essence of the practice is not bad. It's sacred. And so how do Mm -hmm. we honor that? And, um, honor where it's from and still offer it as a, as a practice and still connect with that as a practice.
0: Mm-hmm. And since you, you came up with the, the kind of skill in action um, phrase through the Bhagavad Gita, which you talk a lot about in the book. And, and I know it's just a very central um, spiritual text for you. And you've also helped me to deepen my appreciation for that and not not be so mad at the parts <laughs> that I struggle with. Um, so I would love to hear you just say a little bit about what you love about the Gita. I'm so glad you asked about this. I've been teaching
1: more about the Gita. Um, and the text was introduced to me years ago um, in a training about social change. And that's when I first heard yoga skill in action um, from this the co-leader who was reading with me and I didn't know what she was reading from and she read that and she read um, the verse which I always talk about which is 2.40 which is no effort is wasted no gain ever reversed even a little this practice will shelter you from sorrow Um, as I've like dived in more deeply and I'm teaching more about it I feel like the there are things about the Bhagavad Gita like it's a war and it's set up as a binary and there's good and evil. Um, and and that can feel problematic to folks. And, and I often say, well, you know, we're complex. I don't talk about people as being good or evil. It's like, I do things that cause harm and I try to do good things in the world. Um, so I want to offer that sort of disclaimer about it. And more <laughs> people have a response to, especially when we have things like Ahimsa, one of the Yamas where we're not supposed to be violent towards one another. Of course, the setting is this war and, the warrior has to like live into his dharma to fight the war, to protect the innocent people. And I always say we're at war. Like Internally, mm-hmm. we're struggling. Externally, we're struggling. We're at war with the planet. We're harming it. Like it's not at war with us, but we are <laughs> um, harming it with one another. We are in all of these different ways. So Arjuna and the, the Gita had a bow and arrow, but we have all these other weapons that we use against one another. So I'll offer that too like the context to me in this moment is a war. I mean oppression wages war on people. Like mm. that is how it operates. Systems of supremacy wage war um against people. So the Gita is so um resonant because the warrior has to take a stand. He has to decide. He's not neutral. And Um, you know, you know, this from spending time with me, like in yoga communities, often people want to be neutral. And in fact, this warrior had to like protect the people who were being harmed. Well, what if we all protected the people who are experiencing harm? You know, like what would the world be like? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, the warrior also had a lot of resistance to living into his dharma, his duty is purpose I'm thinking about your question about purpose and why I'm here so the warrior didn't want to engage because it meant fighting people that he knew um and and yet the the cause right the just claim which was that one he was asking for his kingdom back but but that's not really the the essence of the gita he was fighting to protect these innocent people that were that he knew would experience more harm i feel like where do we notice resistance within ourselves when we're actually trying to create movements for social change? And the, and the cause was, was so righteous. Like we need to protect these people who will experience harm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, often when I teach it, I focus on the first two chapters, but it has many, many chapters and all of them are impactful. I focus on the first two because it's where the warrior learns how to ask for guidance and help. And in the Gita, he's asking for help from Krishna or God. But what does it mean for us to ask for help and know we can't do this alone? And to listen, like to learn and be humble. And um, the verse about the the practice protecting us from great sorrow or or sheltering us Mm -hmm. from sorrow is like live into your purpose and make it about something bigger than you, but live Mm -hmm. into it because you're going to suffer if you don't. And if you try to to live into someone else's purpose, that's gonna cause more suffering. That's worse than like struggling with your own purpose. So I just, I think, I mean, there's so many themes in it that I feel like relate to what we are experiencing now. And the fact that we have to make a decision about how we wanna move forward. Like we can't Mm -hmm. be in this, I don't know how to do this. We can be in the, how do I wanna respond to the resistance I feel in my body? Because the Mm -hmm. moment is calling for me to do this, right? that makes sense to me, but we can't be in this inaction. We can't like, we have to, we have to take action in, in some way. Um, so I'd invite people to, it's not the text for everyone. And I would invite people to, and it's also can be really difficult to read at first. Like I've have like five translations and have read it multiple times because it's really, it's a story that's saying the same thing over and over, but in different ways. And, um, for some people, it can be hard to relate it to what we're experiencing. And so I would invite people to take it in little by little mm-hmm. and to see how it might fit with what we are experiencing and what they see, what they feel as they move about their their lives in the world.
0: Yeah. And, and all of the things that you just named feel very true and important to me as themes that are very relevant for our actual lives. Um And it just is another reminder to me of that rigidity is not the answer because it's like, okay, if all that's true, but I don't like where he talks about how like your physical body is basically just this jacket that you can discard and it doesn't really matter. And it's, you know, kind of trash. And what really matters is the spiritual self, even that like, okay, even if there's parts of that, that I bristle against, um, I think there are also pieces of that, that contextually are like, okay, well, what if someone happens to be born into uh, either an identity or, you know, where they are positionally in their life, in their culture, in their community, they don't have a lot of power. Like that might be a really important idea for them to remember, I am more than this body. So (laughs) even that idea that might be problematic or um, challenging in some ways might also have value in other ways.
1: Mm-hmm. And yes, I love that part of the Gita because um, what the what the interpretation with the commentary says is that Krishna is saying to Arjuna, you have to like lean into this, what's happening in front of you, and you have a job and you need a body to actually do that. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing it for is, is because you understand your spirit and you're connecting to the larger self, like, which is divinity, which is everyone and everything. And, and Krishna is really inviting Arjuna and us to hold both in the way you just named. And it has been liberating for me to remember I'm spirit and not this body, because based on race, the white supremacy culture doesn't want this body to be. Mm -hmm. So when I'm remember I'm spirit, I'm able to actually do my work, I'm able to live into my purpose, when there's fear, when I understand white supremacy still persists, right? That knowing I'm more expansive than this moment, than the conditions in place and then this body that allows me to continue to move forward. So Mm -hmm. you're right. I think it's, I mean, I'm not a, um, I'm not a either or thinker and I'm like, let's be with the 18 truths that are here right (laughs) now. And I know it's uncomfortable, but let's just do it because it's real. It's what's happening. Mm -hmm. So the rigidity for me, I'm sure I am rigid at times, but I think I've worked to be like, actually all these things are going on and it's not one way. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's this way for me, but it may not be for the person who's over there. Like, I don't, I don't know their experience. Um, right. I don't understand. And in, in a moment it could shift. That's the reality too.
0: So mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think it's important for us to, to remember all of the different things. We're not just one thing, all of the mm-hmm. different things that might be happening. Um, and I love that lesson from the the Gita because, what he's saying is you're living a worldly life and your spirit
0: what mm-hmm. it to
1: recognize both.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And well, two thoughts. One, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, want to make the distinction between um, not being rigid. I don't think that's, that's not mutually exclusive with um, saying that there are some things that are just wrong right? Mm -hmm. Like with this, it doesn't, it's not always going to be, well, everyone has their own truth or, you know, there's, there's truth on both sides. It's like, okay. I mean, that would take us down a whole different road, but I just wanted to make that (laughs) distinction. That is not what I think either of us are saying. Um, There are some things that are just wrong. Um, And then to the point about just the the value of the body and working with what's in front of us. And this is the vessel that we're given to do our, our work in the world and to experience life in the world. Um, I really like this is the last little piece that I'll, I'll share from skill and action. And then you can say if there's anything else you want to say about it, but, um, this to me really perfectly exemplifies to me, the importance of bodyfulness, which is, you know, that just conscious contemplative awareness of, our physical selves and that it's not only the mind that has the value, um, in so many ways. So you write, um, in skill and action that our culture conditions us to notice what is going on from the head up and not from the throat and heart down. The only way out is through by way of feelings. If we're going to make social change, we need to cultivate a practice of feeling when one connects with their feelings as yoga teaches us to do, one can connect with their heart. If one is connected with their heart, they have the opportunity to be changed and to shift their perspective. They have the opportunity to feel the pain of living in a world that is designed to break the spirit through violence, oppression, and injustice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't know if there's anything you want to add or what comes up for you even just in hearing your own words there. Well, you know, it's so... um...
1: It's interesting to hear the words that I wrote because I, I certainly have said that and believe that. And then to hear <laughs> them back is it's a reminder that that book was definitely channeled
0: mm.
1: and moved through because I couldn't have told you like, Oh yeah, I wrote that and it's going like, it's just not present with me <laughs> in, in that way. Um, because it really moved through and came out and was like something that needed to be be said or that's what i felt how i felt um and and this relates to finding refuge too because it's mm-hmm. the subtitle is "Heartwork for healing collective grief it i feel like this and this culture dominant culture really moves us away from the heart on purpose and away from our feelings in the way that that quote you just read um talks about that we're really taught to intellectualize and that the intellect is the most important part of who we are. And really what is driving us most of the time, like our feelings are are driving us, they're motivating us, they're moving us. Um, And then we'll have a thought about them, but often it's like some sensation or some emotion or something happening in the nervous system. And then I think the mind catches up with that or the mind might say something and then the nervous system responds. And we might be like, well, don't pay attention to that. Think about this. I think that does such a disservice, like, to our humanity. Like, I just think mm-hmm. we we have to feel because I think by feeling we will, as it says, connect with the heart, but ultimately change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, we will change how we are and who we are, if we're able to connect to the tenderness in the heart that is, is um, derives from us being in these bodies, feeling all the things we've talked about right? And, and trying to move through a world that's quite confusing and causes a lot of dissonance for people. Even the, even dissonance around, like, I don't want to see what's going on, but inside knowing, like, I actually should be present to what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. Or should be showing up, not to should people, but like, I I want to be showing up. I do have a purpose, but I don't, I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to pay attention to that. Like that causes Mm -hmm. dissonance for people. So what is it like to be with that dissonance what is it like to be with that confusion what is it like to be like i'm brokenhearted that i can't show up and i want to show up or i don't mm-hmm. know what to do or i don't know why these things keep happening like that's not a, a you know intellectual process it is a heart mm-hmm. process and it is heart work it is like moving the heart and you know shifting the heart and shaping the heart conditioning it in a different way so i think mm-hmm. it's so so important and and what would it be like to I don't have children but I have children in my life but I'm thinking about them and what it would be like to um support them in cultivating a really healthy connection with emotions and like emotional Mm -hmm. capacity and like and actually in so many ways I think children are emotionally intelligent and connected in a way that as like we grow up systems say don't don't feel right um you know, be strong, don't cry, that kind of thing, which is reinforced Mm -hmm. over and over. Um, So, yeah, I I am all about the feelings and what a, you know, gift we have in contemplative practices like yoga or journaling or mindfulness or any contemplative practice that helps us get into the nervous system and our feelings. It, It moves us away from the mind. It doesn't allow the mind. These things don't allow the mind to like be in control.
0: Right. Of everything. Yeah. Because, you know, if we were operating purely based on logic and rationality, like, I feel like in that sense, we would be extremely selfish creatures. It's like, oh, well, don't do this. That's going to hurt. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. But because our heart cares so, so deeply and we can connect with, with the feeling of love in our bodies. And it's such a visceral, you know, wanting to protect or, um, you know, we'll literally jump in front of a train to save someone that we love, which is completely irrational. So, yeah, being able to connect with the body and and learn how to um, re-attune to that, that that society sort of teaches us to shut down.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And practice, that reattunement is like aligning,
0: lining, right? lining mm-hmm.
1: up, right? It's, and a practice can help us do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you mentioned finding refuge and and said a little bit about kind of the uh, heart work and moving through collective grief. But is there anything else you want to share about just kind of how that idea came into the world and and into the the shape of this book and podcast that it's now in?
1: Yeah. um, So, I
0: said that, you know, listening to what
1: the quote from Skill in Action reminds me that the book was channeled, and this idea for finding refuge was also an ancestral. Uh, it's, mm. it's ancestrally led <laughs> like it, it was a seed of an idea that they implanted and the idea was really like we need to come together and grieve but i didn't know why this was 2 years ago it's actually a little over 2 years ago um and that what manifested from that idea is an actual retreat which we ended up doing on zoom because of covid where 40 people came together it was called healing and community and we came together and with um, four other facilitators, we led people through an experience of exploring collective grief and their own personal grief and um, invited them to think about what it is to like to create conditions for liberation for all and what is the link between, we explored the link between grief and liberation. Um, and as that was happening, I was also writing Finding Refuge. So in the spring of last year, I um, wrote a proposal, I think it was maybe February, actually, wrote a proposal um, about finding refuge, although that wasn't the name of it then, and knew I wanted to focus on collective grief. And actually, I'd written two chapters of the book before COVID happened, one about my mother and one about a transition from Portland, Oregon, to North Carolina, and, and things that happened while I was in Portland and loss that I experienced while I was there. And I mean the timing is just for this book to like come out in the world into the world is um, it's right and it feels like only something my ancestors could have planned and <laughs> done mm-hmm. it's like collective grief like people do talk about it but not that many people and we're like one I don't think covid's completely over I'm not approaching mm-hmm. the world in that way but we It has shifted in some ways. And what a time for um, a tool that can help us process what we've just been through. Like we've Mm -hmm. all been through something horrific. It's impacted us very differently. And what would it be like to make space to move through and process some of what we have lost and to grieve Mm -hmm. together and to get into the heart. So finding refuge is really focused on the heart and through spiritual practices invites people into Um, presence and being present to what is and what's going on in the heart and invites people to think about um, their role at this time. How do we respond to what's going on based on our different identities? Um, There's a chapter about intuition and the heart's wisdom as well. Um, There's a chapter about wholeness and there's a chapter about the collective so the collective hive about the bees but it's about our collective hive and our whole ecosystem and there's a chapter about medicine which is uh the medicine we will bring forth like what is our medicine Mm. because we this is alchemy that we are (laughs) engaging in those of us who are like trying to shift the tide like it's it's magic that's what it is it's medicinal and it's magical so um each chapter has a story of my own process of grief and loss and then it's Scaled to the collective, and then there's a practice or two after each chapter. And um, it just feels like the part of the medicine that's needed now. Hmm. And it, it's actually coming out, it comes out July 13th of this year, 2021. And the book, the introduction is about the which I wrote a tiny bit about in Skill in Action. It's about the um, moment that I heard George Zimmerman was acquitted for hmm. murdering Trayvon Martin. and um, I enter in that way. And that actually, the acquittal happened on July 13th, 2013. And my book's coming out eight exactly wow. eight years later. Yeah. Um, which Shambhala Publications actually moved up my publication date from August to July 13th. But I actually think my ancestors and spirit were like, this is the day it needs to come out. <laughs> so we're going to move it up to July 13th. And it just feels like and I didn't even know that like someone told yeah. me, Oh, this is the day I knew. I mean, obviously I'm connected to that acquittal and, mm-hmm. and the trauma at that time and black lives matter movement coming out of that. But I just didn't remember the date. I knew it was summer. And then someone brought my attention to it, like brought it to my attention and said, this is exactly eight years after I remember that mm-hmm. day. Well, I was sitting with two other black mothers in Florida when this happened. And I was like, Oh, this is the alchemy right this is the wow. like, some mm-hmm. cycle you know something is is happening and moving um so i like to name that because it's synchronous it's like it's supposed to come out on july 13th and it's supposed to begin with the moment i fell apart on the floor upon hearing mm-hmm. that news and um the moment my relationship shifted to grief like my understanding of deep ancestral grief moving through me versus mm-hmm. grief that like it was specific to a losing someone or something. That moment of grief was like the world shifted underneath me. I felt like there was no ground at all. In fact, things moved the way it's sort of the moment George Floyd was murdered. it feel it felt similar to me, this like because the consciousness of the collective was waking up, people were horrified, and it and it um felt like a pivotal moment. And that moment when George Ermanman was acquitted felt that way too. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a lot about it, maybe, but a little bit about how it came to be and um, what it turned into into the retreat and then the the
0: book. Mm hmm. And as you said, in ways that you didn't plan and could not have predicted, it's such a, a needed medicine for everyone right now, mm-hmm. whether what whether they're consciously aware of the the grief experience of all of this or not because I think that is part of what can be so confusing sometimes about like you've probably heard that phrase um ambiguous grief and so it's like you know it's not as like clear cut of a I lost this person or this relationship is over and I am grieving that it is this deeper layered you know like you said just almost ineffable kind of experience it's that's still grief but it's Just, yeah, it's complicated. It
1: is, and it's going to last for a long time. And I think Mm -hmm. people, like, I often think about the healthcare workers and globally and what they've had to face over the last year and a half. Like, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to face more death than you have ever faced? And then your career didn't prepare you for this. Like, your training didn't prepare you to be like, you get to live and you get to die. You get the ventilator and you don't. Like, no one... (laughs) we're not prepared to respond to these kind of things. I just don't, I mean, we do, we respond, but I don't think our nervous systems have right. been set up to do it is my point. You mm-hmm. know, I think about the children and um, one, the amount of death they've experienced, the uncertainty and how that lives inside of children and what comes from that space, like the anxiety that comes from that, wearing masks for them. I mean, it affected me, like I couldn't see people smile. Well, what did that do mm-hmm. to children? Yeah, uh, and their psyche, um, because it certainly affected adult psyche. Like, how are they relating or not being able to be in school or being in school with some, You know, I just think what I've noticed is people are like, let me rip off the mask and act like COVID never mm-hmm. happened. And I'm feeling so, um, frustrated about it and also concerned because
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know, I'm not God, I don't know what's going to happen. And I do have wisdom. <laughs> though. And I I just know this isn't over and that we need to like unravel and allow the layers to be exposed so that we can grieve. Or we're just I don't I'm not saying COVID will happen again, but something will happen that will be like, are you gonna do your work now? Are you gonna do your
0: That's what I
1: mean. And I'm worried for that. Like what what is it gonna take for us to like do our work?
0: Exactly. Like as Sonia Renee Taylor and so many other people have said in different ways, like we shouldn't go back to normal if normal what was go- was what was happening before. I mean, sure, there's aspects of what was happening before that were beautiful in terms of gatherings and all of that. but But the big picture, like, this is the portal or the opportunity for change. So can we please take it instead of just, like, jump right back into the way things were?
1: I know. I know. I feel like people... Some folks I'm observing are just going back and I get it. It's like the, it's mm-hmm. like denial. I mean, I, I get it. I'm not mm-hmm. judging that because that, I feel like that's our human like experience in sure. conditioning to be like, let's act like that never happened because it was way too horrific for us yeah. to deal with. And I'm also like, if we never do that, we'll keep repeating the same patterns. Not that we generated mm-hmm. COVID, but like it illuminated all the things mm. that were already present. Prior to it, all the systems of oppression and inequities, and who contracted it more and who was able to heal and who wasn't like, and we were having a global experience of it as well um, and the resources around it like it's it just highlighted so much so many things that need attention, and I don't know why it happened, but I do think one of the opportunities is to look at what it what it has revealed and illuminated and to work with that instead of being like, you know. I'm going to act like it never was. Well, how mm-hmm. far has that ever gotten us? Right. Like, when we act like it never happened.
0: Personally or collectively. Right? Yeah, exactly.
1: That doesn't promote healing. It, it mm-hmm. never will. So I know it's not for everyone, the work I do, but I'm kind of like, let's deal with
0: what we need to deal with. Right. That's part of yep. my purpose. Let's deal with it, y'all. Absolutely. Yep. You're like elephant right here. Can we talk about this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and you have your book launch party coming up on July 13th. So if people are listening to this before then you can go to the website that will be in the show notes and register for that. I will definitely be there and can't wait to get my hard copy of the book. Um, I even just hearing you describe the chapters and knowing the themes in it, I'm just like, I I can't wait to, to get my hands on it. So thank you for all that you are offering um and is there anything else that you want to highlight in terms of where people should go or other things you're offering that we haven't touched on
1: um well the best way for people to find me is my website which is michellecjohnson.com and um the book launch information is on there so people can as you said register for that it'll be on zoom I haven't completely figured out what I'm going to do for it, but I'm excited to bring people together and like celebrate that this is going to be in the world. Um, and prior to that, I'm going to offer an IG Live, a ritual and a meditation as well. So people can tune into that if they'd like. And um, I have a lot of skill in action workshops coming up, dismantling Racism, Finding Refuge, where we explore collective grief, personal and collective grief and how we are resourcing ourselves at this time. Mm. So the website's the best way to, to sort of stay up to date there. I'm I'm always doing things I feel like. So, (laughs) and like creating. And so, um, you know, people can find something that might
0: resonate with them through the website. Beautiful. Yeah. And I just, as you said that I had the image of your bees again, like you're just there making your honey, sharing (laughs) it with the world. (laughs) that yeah yeah thank you so much yeah for for everything and for taking the time to be here i know people are going to to get a lot out of listening to this conversation so thank you
1: thank you for inviting me to
0: to be here um
1: what you said about the honey is Mm
0: -hmm. it makes
1: me think about sometimes i'm out in the bee yard at night and the hive that is the biggest um sting um I can smell their honey when I'm not even like next to the hive so like they're in there making honey and I can smell it but I'm not watching them actively create it it's like somehow that happens they do it and just making me think about um the sweetness of that and what we create and sometimes we won't which is another lesson in the Gita sometimes we won't see the honey right um, yeah. But no, it's there. Like it's people are being affected by it. People are smelling that honey, right? And and that medicine um, in the honey. So I'm glad you said that because it really it made me think about about that, like how sweet it is um, to have that in the air. And they don't know. Well, they probably do know I'm there because they're <laughs> quite intuitive. But like having that experience, like oh, they're creating so much sweetness.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, head over to GaiaCenter.co and follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Center and at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. And if you're into animal stuff and delicious vegan food, be sure to check out my other podcast, Vegan and Vibrant. See you next time.